1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Can you hear me? Can you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to The Lock-In, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish.
0: Oh, right.
1: Where were we? i forgot. I have too. We're talking today to a man described or accused in one of the papers as belonging in a half-light of men in Burberry Max and trilby hats, of Cambridge spies and suburban disguises, of an era in which it was possible to believe in a murderous cause so strongly that you were willing to betray your country for it. He's Ben McIntyre, a man who worked for years as a journalist and then did what so many of them threatened to do, and wrote a book. In fact, he's written several of them, about deceit and deception, about patriotism and treachery. You've probably heard of them, even if you haven't read them. Operation Mincemeat, Operation Zigzag, A Spy Among Friends, Double Cross, The Spy and the Traitor, and now Agent Sonia. Ben, this is an extraordinary story. For people who haven't read your book, perhaps you can give us a rundown on Agent Sonia.
0: With great pleasure. Um, I'll start kind of towards the end of the story, then I'll roll back. If you'd been in the Cotswolds village of Great Rollwright in 1945, you might have met Mrs Burton uh, with her three children and her husband Len, who worked in the machine shop in Chipping Norton, and she would you would have seen her coming out of her cottage, a little stone cottage, and climbing onto her bicycle and cycling off into the countryside, what you wouldn't have known was that Mrs Burton was really Colonel Ursula Kaczynski of the Red Army, who had built an enormous radio transmitter in her privy in the back garden, with which she was communicating with Moscow. And what she was sending them were the atom bomb secrets. So she had spies operating within the British Atomic Weapons Programme. And she was really the most important conduit for those secrets uh, in the course of between 1941 and 1945 they transferred from Klaus Fuchs who was a communist spy inside um, the weapons program they, they transferred 570 pages of documents the entire blueprint for building the atomic bomb so when the Soviets detonated their bomb in 1949 that was that was down to Mrs Burton of Great Rollwright.
1: It's an amazing story how did you come by it?
0: purely by accident as these things almost always happen really i was i was actually researching a completely different story which was about again very little known which was that towards the end of the war the american intelligence service began parachuting anti-fascist germans into the reich to try and you know to try and find out what was happening as the reich fell apart and these were recruited in london and the american intelligence officers that did it contacted the local german emigre community to try and find anti-nazi Germans, and these were duly provided by the German emigre community in Hampstead, believe it or not, where most of them lived. What they didn't know, however, was that they were being provided by Ursula Kaczynski. So these agents who were supposed to be working for the Americans were in fact working for the Soviets via her. So that's how I first came across her, and then I spooled it back and found this extraordinary story that starts way, way earlier in, in Weimar, Germany in the 1920s. And her story after that takes her to China, to Japanese-occupied Manchuria, to Poland on the eve of the Nazi invasion, to Switzerland, and then only finally to Great Rollwright in the Cotswolds. Do you like her? That's, a, that's the key question. elements of her are extraordinarily attractive. She was courageous, she was resilient, she was resolute, she was single-minded. She managed to do what no other woman ever did in the 20th century in, in, in intelligence. She was a trained intelligence officer, which sets her apart really from all the kind of mataharis and the, you know, the, image, the mythical images we have of, you know, women with tiny guns in their in their purses. She was on a different scale. So part of her is incredibly impressive. On the other hand, and and also it has to be borne in mind that for the first half of her espionage career, she's attacking fascism. She's a ferocious anti-Nazi operative. But in the second half, she is spying against Britain, against America, she's stealing secrets, and she's working for a brutal totalitarian regime. The question I could never quite resolve, because Ursula herself was never quite honest about it, is how much she really knew about what the Stalinist state was really up to in the 30s and 40s. She maintained in later life that she really hadn't known. I'm not sure. Her friends, her colleagues, during the Stalinist purges, they were being wiped out at an astonishing rate. And clearly in later life, she suffered a crisis of conscience over this. She was shattered when she discovered what had really happened. But the, but the reality is that she's a, she's a flawed heroine. She's not a simple, one-dimensional Monochrome moral hero—you don't find people like that anywhere in life, I don't think. But and if we if we look at history as a kind of moral accountancy operation, where we you know good history, bad history, imperialism bad, you know, uh, anti-fascism good—you don't find those sorts of answers in Ursula's life because her story covers the whole of communism. Really, she was very young when the Bolshevik Revolution took place, and very old when the Berlin Wall came down and so she's the kind of story of the whole thing in all its kind of glory and cruelty and and terribleness and 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 for good as well so she's she's a she's a complex character but ben she was horrible
1: she put her family at risk she compromised her husband all articles of trust in life she abandoned
0: well that's to judge her i think from a very 21st century prism that's to say you know, the way that we think of motherhood today. And also there's a double standard there. I mean, lots and lots of spies, male spies, did absolutely nothing for their families, abandoned them completely. She was a very good mother up to the point when it collided with her ideological principles. And that's one of the things that makes her extraordinary is that most spies invent their past. They they are fantastic fabulists. They just make it up. Ursula is very honest in her writings about the struggle that she had between what she saw as her ideological duty and, and, the, and the responsibilities of motherhood and creating a family. And she was extraordinarily defensive of her, of her children. But you're right, it sowed a kind of level of mistrust and deceit into their family dynamic, which is part of this story. I mean, I don't shy away from it in any way. I'm not, there's no gloss on Ursula. But in order to understand her, you have to, to realise the context that she came from. And I think that's the, that's the difficulty people have with Cold War stories, is they don't often realise where the story comes from. Now, I've written about Kim Philby, I've written about Burgess and Maclean, all those people whose communism came to them in the warm, comfortable common rooms of Oxford or Cambridge. You know, uh, over the sherry, they adopted a, an ideology. Ursula came to it in the chaos and miasmic horror of Weimar Germany when the Nazi party was on the rise, fascism was on the march, and many people thought, and I think many of us might have thought the same thing in those circumstances, that the only way to stop it was communism.
1: You're making excuses for her. People die as a consequence of what spies do.
0: They do if they're not very good. Nobody died as a result of what what Ursula did. In fact, look, you can say that quite a lot of people were made safer by what Ursula did. You're sort of forcing me into a position of having to defend her. Which is not, not right, because if you read the book, you'll see that I'm extremely nuanced about my take on Ursula. But her argument, admittedly made retrospectively, but hard to argue with, was that by providing the Soviets with the evidence and, and the information in order to build an atomic weapon, what happened as a result of that was the balance of power that ensured you know, the, the, the fragile era of mutually assured destruction. That, looking back on it, made us probably all safer. And look at it another way. I mean, America first, it's very much in our minds at the moment. You know, there is, a, there, is a, there is a great America first operation underway. If America in 1945 had been the only country with the atomic weapon, it wouldn't just be America first. It would be, it would be America absolutely hegemonic and dominant. Now, I'm not sure that's a world I would have wanted to live in.
1: What, do you prefer to live in a balance of terror, would you?
0: It worked. It kept us all safer. It really did. I mean, do you do you not think you'd rather have had a kind of utterly dominant capitalist system dominating the world? I'm not sure I would.
1: You think she influenced the course of history then?
0: Oh, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. And look, I'm not saying necessarily entirely for the better. I think that whole question of whether, you know, the era of mad and mutually assured destruction made us all safer. I mean, I think that is properly debatable. But it's certainly it's a perfectly valid and respectable argument. And I'm not sure you, Jeremy, is an old trot. I'm not sure you wouldn't, in 1930, have taken a look at you know, the rise of, of fascism and thought, hang on, there's only one way really to stop this? I mean, that was a perfectly respectable thing to do. This is someone who, you know, I mean, she battled against fascism for, for 15 years and she was very effective. She came very close to assassinating Hitler. Now... It didn't happen because of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. It was called off at the last moment when the the Nazis and the Soviets went into alliance. To her horror, you know, she'd spent her life battling fascism and suddenly the cause that she believed in was in this unholy alliance with the enemy. But that was weeks before she was due to launch the plot to kill Hitler. And she would undoubtedly have carried it out.
1: And you think it could have worked?
0: It's what-if history, and I'm never too keen on what-if history. But... um, it seems to well, it, the, the plot really went like this. On her way to Switzerland, and this is to jump into the middle of the story, she had recruited two British communists, uh, veterans of the Spanish Civil War who'd fought on the Republican side, who were committed to, to communism. And the, one was based in Munich and one was based in Frankfurt. And the Munich-based one, who was called Alexander Foote, and these were agents of Ursula that she was running inside the Reich in the run-up to the war. Alexander Foote, started having lunch in a place called the Osteria Bavaria, which was Hitler's favourite restaurant. Uh, so whenever he was in Munich, it was run by an old comrade in arms of his from the First World War. He would always have lunch there. And Foote spotted that there was a very thin partition between the sort of semi-private dining room where the Führer was having his mineral water and chopped vegetables and where the rest of the diners were. And he worked out, he happened to mention casually to Ursula, look, if we planted a bomb there, we could we could get rid of him instantly, and he was very badly defended in 1939. And we often forget it, but in fact, the sort of Gestapo goons that were standing around him were pretty unobservant. And And when Ursula reported this to Moscow, word came back, yep, off you go, do it, go for it. And they they had the bombs ready. They were about three weeks away from, uh, from doing it. It's a miracle she wasn't killed during the course of the war, isn't it? Oh, it's a miracle she wasn't killed in her 20s, Jeremy. I mean, she, you know... Yes, she risked her family's life, but boy, she risked her own before she even had a family. I mean, she was in Japanese-occupied Manchuria in 1931, running underground communist cells against the Japanese, um, the Japanese occupiers. If they'd caught her, she would have been tortured and executed. And that is true all the way up through her life until she arrived in, in Britain, where she wouldn't have been killed, she would, she would have been arrested.
1: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at borough.com slash ACAST. When she came to Britain, the the authorities were pretty slow off the mark, weren't they?
0: (laughs) They were spectacularly incompetent. I mean, they, they missed her time and time and time again. And the reason why they did so is because she had a brilliant disguise, and that was her gender. Nobody, and I mean really nobody bar one person inside MI5, could conceive of the idea that a married woman with three children baking scones in great roll could conceivably be an espionage agent. It would have taken a woman, I think, to spot Ursula, and there was only one woman in the counter-subversion section of MI5, and that was a tremendous woman by the name of Millicent Baggett. Uh, and Millicent Baggett, Actually, she was the model for John Le Carré's Connie Sachs, the sort of the spinster in Emma in uh, in the intelligence services, and she was an unmarried woman, formidable, tough as hell. And very early on, she smelled a rat. She said to MI five to her male bosses, "There's something there's something wrong about this." They were already watching the Kaczynskis because the whole family had taken refuge uh, from the Nazis in Britain, and they were known to be left wing. Communists, you know, who were who were sort of thought to be against the war effort. So they were keeping an eye on her. But every time Millicent Bagot said, we need to take an eye on to Ursula, her male bosses said, no, 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 of course not. Look, she's making birthday cakes for her three-year-old son. It's just not possible. They even, there's a hilarious police report from about 1942, I think it is, in which a local policeman says, We've been round to the Burton's house and uh, there's nothing really to report. They're very, they live very quietly, but we have noticed there, are, there is an enormous radio aerial on the roof. Um, we think this might be, you may think this worthy of further investigation. And MI5 didn't think it was worthy of further investigation. I mean, she'd have been absolutely banged to rights, um, but she, she kind of was invisible. You like her chutzpah, don't you? It's, look, when I set out on this project, I thought, crikey, I'm going to be living with a, with a die-hard communist for three years. That's not going to be much fun. I mean, I, you, know, you know, doctrinaire communists don't tend to be the best company. And, you know, if you're writing a book like this, you are actually living with your subject day and night. And she grew on me. She really grew on me. And by the end of it, I found it very hard not to admire certain aspects of her character. She is tough, as only somebody who'd lived through the worst of 20th century history could be. She really was. But she was also in some ways very gentle. And she had a capacity for introspection that I had never found in dealing with this material before. She was able to look at herself and mock herself. Weirdly, I mean, again, rare for a doctrinaire communist. She had a great sense of humor. At times she found it killingly funny what she was doing. I mean, fear and, and amusement are often allies. And, and there are moments, even at the greatest of peril, when she was able to sort of look outside herself and go, my God, this is absurd.
1: I often think that priests and spies are similar. And they're both sometimes racked by doubts. Did she have doubts?
0: Oh, yes. And I think that is a very good point. I think all zealots, all extremists, suffer moments of doubt. I mean, if you're a true believer, there will be part of your soul, I think, that starts a niggle. And undoubtedly, she had doubts. She had more than doubts. In the 30s, the late 30s, her friends and her colleagues were being systematically wiped out by Stalin's executioners. 1.5 million people died, were arrested in Stalin's purges, of whom nearly 700,000 were killed, most of them completely innocent. So, so that was a terrible moment for her. She, She sort of kind of knew what was going on, but she didn't look at it straight. Then there was the, you know, the, the, by the time she got in behind the Iron Curtain in, into East Germany, there was the Hungarian uprising, brutally put down by the Soviets. The, the, the Czechoslovakian crisis that w- when, when Alexander Dubček's nascent reform movement was destroyed by the Soviet tanks, that was a huge crisis for her. I mean, she went, she, you know, she had, a, she had a sort of semi-breakdown at that point. Um, and then in later life, you know, in old age, she had to see the dismantling of communism. She witnessed the whole thing. And she wrote very movingly in a way. She said, I didn't do what I did for Stalin. I did what I did for the sake of an idea. But she knew, and she was really quite candid about this, she knew that this truth that she'd followed all her life for nearly 80 years, this, this sort of transcendent, beautiful, pure truth, had in fact in a tissue of lies and she oh, died a very come. disillusioned woman she did that's a bit
1: like the apologia the god that failed where does it leave em forster's dictum about if i had to choose between betraying my country and betraying my friends i hope i'd have the guts to betray my country
0: Yes, I mean, I've never quite understood that. I mean, is he suggesting that it is better to betray your friends than betray your country? I mean, or, or better to betray your country than betray your friends? I think it's a slightly ambivalent thing. In her case, she never betrayed her country. I mean, she would argue that she was trying... To, I mean, she, she, she didn't agree that somehow being British, as she was, and working for the communists, she saw no contradiction in that, as many of, the, many of those diehard communists did not. She thought you could be both. MI5 didn't think you could be both, and most Britons would have disagreed with that idea <laughs> that you could somehow be a sort of patriotic Briton. But she believed fervently that advancing the cause of communism was what Britain needed. Now, that takes enormous arrogance, I will I will give you that. Um, but all, all ideologues share that arrogance, that their vision of the world is, is the right one and they have a right to impose it on others. That's as true of the, of the left as it is of the right. Um, so, And it, indeed, it is as true of capitalist and democratic countries as it is of all others. So, I, look, I'm not, I, she's not a one-dimensional character. I'm not trying to say that she was a perfect human being. In fact, I'm quite the reverse. I think she had enormous and very complex flaws. But she, she had a kind of spark of humanity that re, re, actually, I think, saves her from becoming a communist monster. Why is it that spy stories,
1: fiction or fact, are so fascinating... The rest of us suffer by them very often.
0: Yes, I mean, look, spying itself is a morally fraught and ambivalent business. At its worst, you are right, it is horribly destructive of everybody involved in it and, you know, the causes often that it's trying to serve. At its best, you know, intelligence is a noble calling that makes us all safer. I mean, MI5, the security service, does an extraordinary job, um, usually with exceptions of keeping it safe. But why why do these stories fascinate us? Well, I think you've put your finger on it by saying, you know, in fact or in fiction. Because one of the reasons I love writing about this stuff is that you get to write about the sorts of subjects that are usually dominated by novelists. Loyalty, love, betrayal, adventure, romance. But because of the way that the spy world works, and because spies are themselves often extremely indiscreet, and there is a very large growing collection of declassified material in the National Archives. It's possible to write these non-fiction stories in a way that I hope sometimes reads like novel, like a novel, but is nonetheless entirely true. Nothing is ever made up in these stories. And you don't have to because the truth is so much stranger than fiction anyway. I mean, it truly is. And also spies are tremendous fabulists. They live in a kind of imagined world. And I've often thought that, I mean, Ursula in later life became a novelist. She reinvented herself as someone completely different in East Germany and became Ruth Werner. And she she published a number of highly successful children's novels. She became really effectively the Enid Blyton of East Germany. Um, And I think that is quite interesting because there is clearly a link between the fictional urge and espionage. It is no accident, it seems to me, that some of the greatest writers of the 20th century were also spies. David Cornwall, John le Carré, Somerset Maugham, Graham Greene, Ian Fleming, John Buchan, these are all people that had had lived and worked in the kind of semi-imaginary world of espionage. And it's not a huge leap to go from there into, into fiction. What you do as a spy very often is to create a false world and you try to lure other people into it. And the better you are at doing that, the better a spy you'll be and probably the better novelist you'll be. What is the first thing Stella Rimmington did when she stepped down as head of MI5?
1: Wrote a bad novel. Several. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to be a narcissist, haven't you?
0: Yes, I think that helps. Um, I think you have to have a sense of your own drama. You have to be willing to compromise the lives of others. I mean, what MI6 does, in essence, and this is a bald generalisation, but MI6 goes to foreign countries and persuade citizens of those foreign countries to betray their own countries for money. that's, That's how a large chunk of this works. And to do that, you have to have a pretty narcissistic personality, I suspect. You have to be able to use what persuasive skills you have to encourage other people to do things that are probably not in their best interests. They may serve your higher cause, but they may not be very good for them. So, yes, there is an element of coercion, if you like, personal coercion.
1: Almost the closing words of the book are she was always still and always had been a spy. Now, what does that
0: mean? What is the essence of a natural spy? Is there a type? Oh, I think there is, definitely. I mean, what that means, I think, is that she had always lived a double life. Now, that double life changed over time, and the interior life changed just as the exterior life changed. She changed her names, she changed her places, she changed her circumstances, she changed husbands, she changed lovers. But always, and in essence, I think there was a duality to her. There were, there were if you like, in that, that line from Kipling, there were two sides to her head. And I think that is absolutely the essence of espionage. You have to be able to compartmentalise. And that is what Kim Philby did, it is what McLean did, it is what Oleg Gordievsky, who who my last book was about, was able to live one life on the outside and yet be nourished emotionally and intellectually and ideologically by the secret life that he and others live on the inside. And that is undoubtedly true of Ursula. It's a strange thing, secrecy. I think spying is addictive. I think the drug of secrecy is something that gets into you and it's very very difficult to renounce but the price that you pay and it is one that ursula paid as all spies that i've ever written about have paid is that you end up perhaps not quite knowing who you really are it's rather tragic isn't it it's tragic in some ways it's fascinating in others it's actually rather uplifting in some ways i mean when it works it's it's extraordinary um Yes, I think spies often do have tragic lives, and I think secrets are very bad for you in the end. But they can bring out extraordinary qualities as well. Um, and as you say, the imaginative one is, is perhaps front and centre. You know, it's a separate... We all have this fantasy to some extent that, that what you... you know, The Jeremy Paxman that I see from the outside, there's, you, I'm sure would say there's a different one on the inside, and, and everybody is like that. It's a question of how far you take that what you do with that central human fantasy.
1: But have you ever come across happy spies in later life?
0: Yes, I have. On the whole, it seems to me that in order to do this job well, you have to have a kind of slightly missionary zeal to you. You have to have, as you said earlier, that the, the priesthood. You have to have a sense of moral rectitude and service that kind of carries you through regardless of what happens along the way. So they are happy to the extent that they are contented and satisfied. I know many like that. They are probably not like you and me in some ways. They are, they are people who, who know that they're right and know that what they've done is right. I mean, Oleg is a very good example. I mean, he is not Oleg Gordievsky, this extraordinary spy who spied for MI6 inside the KGB for, for many, many years, at huge risk of his life. He's a kind of warrior priest. And his belief in his own moral rectitude is both incredibly impressive and rather chilling.
1: I think we'll leave it there, Ben. Thank you very much indeed.
0: No, thoroughly enjoyed it.
1: Ben McIntyre, a man who probably knows more about spies than is healthy for anyone. Next week I'm having my notional pint of ale with the writer Tom Holland, a brain box of staggering proportions, and surely one of the very few people who could successfully turn a PhD on Byron into a gothic vampire novel. Lately he's been tackling the not insubstantial subject of the making of Western society – And as you might hope, he's got some jolly interesting views on it. Join us for that if you fancy. And in the meantime, stay safe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands.